Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. We're back. Yes, we are back in the first real week of 2016. That's right. And so if you guys have been itching to see more paranormal news, we started a blog at See You on the Other Side Podcast, othersidepodcast.com, where you can see some commentary on paranormal news and pop culture stories coming out. So check that out. Yes. And Mike, you're a trove of stories. Well, there's just always something going on. You're good at finding those things, though. Thanks. You're my resource. You know, here's a story that I should have written about in my tooth, like the wrap up that that the stories people might have missed over the holiday break. Oh, what was that? Okay, so Lemmy did one last interview. Aw. Lemmy Kilmister was the bass player and lead singer of a band called Motorhead. And uh, Motorhead was a pretty sweet band. Their most famous song is the Ace of Spades. If you haven't heard Motorhead... But you're into Ozzy Osbourne. Lemmy wrote a few songs off of the No More Tears album, which is how I heard of him the first time. And uh, anyway, Lemmy was pretty awesome. He was known for a uh, a very, uh, let's say, extreme lifestyle. Yes. <laughs> uh, he liked to party. Like Motorhead was actually slang for a dude that liked to take speed. Oh, so what do you know? I guess I never even really thought about that. But yeah, because hey, I thought it like, makes sense. Like, I thought he just liked motorcycles or something like that. Like, <laughs> oh, let me must be right. you know, a real motorhead. Well, yeah. he he was a real motorhead, like a gearhead or something like you know. That's what right makes me think of. But he wrote some great music, and uh, he lived in Los Angeles. Always hung out at this bar called the Rainbow Bar and Grill that uh, Wendy and I visited for their forty-first anniversary. That's right, the Rainbow Room. Yeah, that was a sheer delight because it was. <laughs> um, it was hair metal dudes as far as the eye could see. It truly was like stepping into a time machine and going back. Yeah, we, <laughs> we showed up and the band that's playing is Faster Pussycat. And uh, we were with a guy who wasn't old enough to live through hair metal the first time. And in, instead of being like, oh my God, where these people come out of, he was like, my people. And <laughs> right, he was so excited about it, he couldn't believe it. Yeah. There, uh, it's, there actually is a place like this here yes. on Earth. Right. He, it, it was like walking into uh, Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, the metal years, is how I felt <laughs> when I'm walking right into it. And that was fun. Anyway, so a quick story about Lemmy. Wrote a lot of great songs. Was known for always being an interesting kind of character. But uh, his last interview was with a German TV network. And he's talking to them. And it, it's like he knows that he's going to go pretty soon. He died of cancer really? on December 28th. Yeah. He, like, he knows he's going to go. Maybe he wasn't feeling so hot at that point, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, he had to cancel a few shows this year because he wasn't feeling so hot. And then yeah. um, I don't even think he went to the doctor because they said like he discovered he had cancer on December 26th and by the 28th he was gone. Wow. And he said that only death would prevent him from hitting the stage. Wow. And he says, I'll have to stop then, I think. But you never know. I could haunt somewhere, yes. mess up somebody else's gig. <laughs> And the, cool. the band that he would haunt, most likely to haunt on stage that he said he wanted to haunt, was Ooh. Tears for Fears. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
That's great. So, so let they me still play out even? Yeah, I think they had a reunion and stuff like that. So Tears for Fears, you guys might know them from Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I, I, it doesn't or, or don't forget, one. shout, shout, let it Oh, out. yeah. These are the things we can <laughs> yeah, do. Okay. Come so, on. So if you go to see them, there and might they, be a little Lenny ghost. Lemmy. Lemmy let let me me messing them up. Right <laughs> when they start sowing the seeds of love, Lemmy's going to mess it up. That would make it almost worth going. I thought that was pretty funny that he said he was going to haunt Tears for Fears after he went. They must have had some dust up in the 80s, because why yeah. would you even think of that? You think Lemmy would like strangle Justin Bieber or something like, you know, like, right. who would Lemmy most likely want to haunt on stage? <laughs> Bloody Tears for Fears. I hate those blokes. See, I'd, I'd probably want to haunt somebody I knew, a band that I was friends with or something. Be like, yeah, I'm going to be up there and jamming with you. You're going to have a little extra percussion on stage. Well, I don't think Ozzy needs the distraction. Like, I think he'd get, like, if he saw a ghost, he'd freak out and he'd die of a heart attack in the middle of the set. <laughs> who well, would you haunt, Mike? Uh, who would I haunt? Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I know it's tough. There's if, a lot, of, if lot you, of options. If you and Ben were still alive, I would haunt you. Awesome. Okay, good. Right? I was hoping for that. So uh, if I go first, um, I'll be on stage. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, I was thinking friends, like friends bands or, or perhaps bands that... <laughs> yeah. And the, the thing is, do we like any of our friends bands enough to come after dying and come back and listen to them? So that's the question. Yeah. I think yeah, there's a few. There's a, there's a couple I'd stop by for. Maybe. And it'd be cool to have a little ghost buddy rocker on stage. Yeah. Join them for an encore. Right. But let me, when he talked about his lifestyle, he said, I don't really recommend the lifestyle because most people die of it. Oh. A lot of my friends are dead who shouldn't be. So get a little caution there for that, for that rock and roll lifestyle from Lemmy, who, who <laughs> from Captain Obvious, <laughs> who's not normally such a dour fellow, but yeah. um, anyway, kept on going right to the end. And I just, we didn't talk about Lemmy no, last we week didn't. because he didn't have any paranormal connections, but here is his paranormal now connection. He has one. And I was so impressed because after he passed away, so many of my friends had little anecdotes from encountering him mm-hmm. at shows or on the road and, you know, our other musician friends who had met him and whatnot. And every single one was positive. Usually you'll get somebody who's, you know, when, it, when it's a celebrity, you'll find people telling stories like, oh, man, he was a real jerk when I met him in real <laughs> right. life. But I didn't see any of those. So I, I have to be impressed by so many personal anecdotes that are from people close to me that actually met him and stuff. So. Yeah, no, I saw the same thing, and I thought that was great, that Lemmy seemed like a nice guy. Yes, sad to see the world lose a guy like that. But 70 years old, and for the lifestyle he led, uh, a motorhead like he was. um, (laughs) Not a bad run. (laughs) Live fast, do not die young. So uh, good job, Lemmy, and thanks for the music. Yes. Uh, Anyway, so that was just some of the fun stuff, and uh, (laughs) I guess that's fun because it's paranormal. Right. So, but for this particular podcast, Wendy, I interviewed somebody who I thought was super fascinating. Okay. Now, the reason I think the super fascinating is because this woman has the job that I want. Ooh. Right? That's great. Yeah. Yes. So they always say like, you know, dress for the job you want and stuff like that. Yeah. So for career day, when we were seniors in high school, I wore a lab coat with a little action figure of Peter Venkman from Ghostbusters in the pocket. So you want to be an action figure scientist that, that designs and builds action figures? Yes, I want to be an action figure scientist. <laughs> I knew it. You, I hey, knew you it. got I had me. A hunch. 
I don't think action, I don't know if action figure scientists exist, unless maybe they're studying the plastic. So if kids swallow it, they don't die. Yeah, that and you know, to make sure the arms and legs like bend properly and stuff like that. Yeah. Like if you remember those old Star Wars action figures, they always had holes in their feet so you could put them on the play sets. <laughs> right. Yep. So it would be the person that measures the holes in Star Wars figures <laughs> feet would be my job. Okay. Seriously, though. Seriously, I want to be a parapsychologist. Yes. And we've talked about this before because you always delve very deeply into those topics and, and with much more background than I have. So it's fun to talk to you about that stuff and especially with your enthusiasm for it. Thank you. So who did you interview and how did this come about? Well, this is Nancy Zingroni, Dr. Nancy Zingroni. And she's worked at all these different parapsychology labs across the country since the early 1980s. I mean, she's the real deal for conducting experiments and doing ESP research. And she talks about telekinetic research, where they they try to determine whether people can affect things with their minds. Cool. Yeah, that's just the, it's the coolest kind of research there is, basically. I'll say. (laughs) And so for anyone who's listening and interested in actually becoming a parapsychologist as an academic, then I think you should listen close to this particular episode because Nancy has a lot of tips for you if you're interested in becoming a parapsychologist. And while you're listening to the interview, you're going to hear Nancy say the word MOOC over and over again. Okay, that stands for Massively Open Online Course. And uh, Uh that's part of what she, she does a lot of online teaching of parapsychology opening. And Massively Open Online Course means that anybody can join all around the world and check it out. So that just, you'll hear her say MOOC several times before we explain it. And that's exactly what it is. Excellent. Well, let's hear the interview, Mike. Yes. I am particularly delighted today to welcome a scientist in the field of parapsychology, something that I feel very passionately about myself. I took an undergrad with with psychology there uh, in case that was my backup was to be a parapsychologist. And so it's exciting today to talk to a real parapsychologist and not just an armchair one like myself, Dr. Nancy Zingroni. How you doing, doctor? Doing well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And no you have a, we, have, we have a ton of different of your projects to talk about. But for people, if you're just meeting them, like on the street or you're at a dinner party or something like that, and they said, so, uh, so Nancy, what do you do? What would you say? I tend to say I teach online. And then from there, we go into a discussion of what I teach. If they're interested in parapsychology and they're interested in the research or they know kind of who I am before they say hello, then we go right to that. We go right to the research and their questions and that kind of thing. But if they have no clue who the heck I am. (laughs) They just say I teach online. I teach online. And then the next question usually is, well, what do you teach online? And then I can say parapsychology and psychology. Okay. And- how long have you been working in this field? How, I mean, how long have you been into it for? A really long time. I had, uh, in my undergraduate school, I went to Mundelein College in Chicago, which doesn't exist anymore. It was uh, sort of uh, folded into Loyola University up there on, in Rogers Park. But at, when I was there in the 70s, there was a guy there named John Bisaha, and he was a professor of psychology at Mundelein. He was really interested in parapsychology. And he talked the administration into letting him start a course. And I took my first uh, credit course in parapsychology in the summer of 1972. Okay. And, and did my, my honors thesis for my BA 
parapsychological topic in 74. I got involved with a no, no longer in operation uh, research center out in Park Ridge, Illinois in 74. And uh, I got the uh, Gertrude Schmeidler Student Award um, for parapsychology parapsychological research from them when I was 23. And she was a very famous parapsychologist who had taught for many, many years at uh, um, city colleges of New York City that studied at Radcliffe and because they didn't let women into Harvard at the time that she right. was in school. She wrote me this 18-page letter criticizing in the kindest way possible my, um, my uh, research. It was uh, very encouraging, and it uh, was amazing to me that someone who was so prominent in the field would take the time to give me advice about what to do next and how better to design the experiment if I wanted to um, actually, if I wanted to carry out a replication. Um, my youngest brother is profoundly deaf, and I did an ESP study with him and his uh uh, some of some of the other uh, some of his friends who were in his uh, school, and that was the the content of my um, uh, the content of my honors thesis was that experiment. So I was amazed, and it inspired me to write uh, J. B. Ryan and ask his advice, which I then framed his letter and promptly ignored everything he said. <laughs> he told me to be a biologist and I was already committed to psychology and he told me not to tell anybody I was interested in the field until after I had tenure and I ignored that completely so never got tenure anywhere. That's pretty funny. Yes. It was a wonderful beginning. Um, and from there, I started to correspond with some of the folks at, uh, it was then called the Institute for Parapsychology and the the, the actual place was called Foundation for Research on on the Nature of Man. Real, real quick before we get into that, I mean, so everybody who knows J.B. Ryan yep. out there, I mean, uh, I mean, he's basically considered the godfather of... <laughs> That's a good term. Of, ...of modern parapsychological research. Yes, of ex experimental, especially. Yeah. yeah. Experimental. Yeah. And he worked out of... Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, correct? He was on the faculty from 1927 to 1964, and the parapsychology laboratory at Duke University was in operation from 1935 until 1963-64. Then when he retired, he opened up an independent institute called the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man, which it was literally just across the street from the wall of East Campus at Duke okay. University. And that uh, had in it the Institute of Parapsychology. He actually wanted to start an institute um, for religious studies because he was interested in religion. But that never, it just never emerged. So the Institute for Parapsychology was really what was operating there. And that's the institution that is the precursor to the Rhine Research Center, which was renamed back in, I think, the early 2000s. Now, where are you from originally? Are you from the... Uh, the Chicago area. I'm... Uh, was born in Berwyn and raised in Woodstock, Illinois, and lived in Chicago from 1970 until I moved to Durham to take the job at the at the Rhine. You know, what I think is interesting is you're talking about, I mean, first of all, the 70s sound very groovy when it comes to college. Uh, <laughs> right, because they have parapsychology <laughs> they classes. I mean, I went 20 years later, and there definitely was no parapsychology classes. Exactly. But one thing I think is interesting is that we were talking to Lloyd Auerbach, last year mm -hmm. and he went to Northwestern and he's, yep. he studied under J. Allen Hynek 
Yep. And so he's got that connection. He's like, oh, yeah, well, Jay Allen Hynek got me interested in this stuff in the first place. Yeah. And, and then it sounds like, was was your professor who got you interested in this for, in the first place? Or was this something that was always on your mind? And is there something about Chicago that makes people <laughs> like weird stuff? I don't know. Chicago is a very interesting place. I, I loved the city when I lived there. Um, uh, no, I had a longer interest. And in, uh, somebody did a study years and years ago about when people got interested in parapsychology, parapsychologists, I mean. And it, it tended to be either uh, in their teens or in their 40s or 50s. And I'm one of those teenager folk. I had a girlfriend when I was in eighth grade who had a lot of experiences. And I was the, the kid in the group that had the better grades and lived out in the country. So sometimes I would get off the school bus after school and go to the library and wait for my mom to pick me up. And I was lucky because someone previous to me who worked at that library in Woodstock at the time, 3,000 people. It was a very small place. The library had all of J.B. Ryan's writings, as well as members of his staff, as well as um, some other classics in the field. And because of my girlfriend's experience, I started to read a lot of these books. And one of the things was, I mean, I was a typical teenager in the sense that I was looking ahead to marriage and family and children and sure. things like that more and, than anything else. And I think that's funny. I mean, anybody who's ever driven from Anybody who's ever gone to O'Hare, you know, yeah. has, has driven through Woodstock or seen the water tower, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a, and it's a, and it's the, you know, Groundhog Day was made there. So it's, people know what the town looks like. Um, but, but what was interesting was I hit, when I was about 14 or 15, I hit in the, this list of books that were on the shelf there, um, Louisa Ryan's uh, book, Hidden Channels of ESP. And, uh, she talked about her relationship to JB. She was JB's wife, and their uh, their story. You know how they got interested mm -hmm. in the field and how they set up the laboratory and how she managed to kind of work in marriage and family and raising the kids and all that kind of stuff into her job. She she was well known in the neighborhood for getting all the neighborhood kids into the kitchen and giving them ESP tests. <laughs> And it was one of those like epiphanies where I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to find somebody that I can um, work with and have all of these things be one piece as opposed to two pieces. And most people have their work on the one hand and their uh, the rest of their life on the other hand. Right. And I just really like the way that she talked about this kind of cohesive whole where they were both mixed up together. And that was also inspirational. Then I, I kind of forgot about it. I would read things here and there about psychics, you know, like Edgar Casey and people like that, and then went to college. And uh, at, a, at the moment at which I was getting uh, distressed with the English department at Mungline at that time, that was what I thought I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, John Bizaha started offering this course and I took it, uh, took it, got totally re-energized and switched back to psychology. And then from then on, Parapsychology was always part of the mix. So, did you did you meet with were, were there dashing young psychologists or at least people <laughs> that would make a good lab assistant for you? Uh, well, I had a lot of uh, I had a lot of friends. We had a good group in Chicago called the Midwest Sci Research Center at one point, and I was teaching it. I was teaching on Saturday mornings at the Field Museum in their adult education program, and um, uh, I had I was teaching a, a 
both parapsychology and uh, elementary stats at Northeastern Illinois University for a while in the late 70s and early 80s after I got my master's. And um, uh, I ended up marrying a chef is what I did. Okay. <laughs> he was interested in what I was doing, but it wasn't his main thing. And one thing led to the other. And we, as we got, as we were maturing, our interests really changed. And I uh, wanted really desperately to go to Durham and he wanted to go to Australia and we, we ended up getting divorced. So that's what happened when I got to Durham. Um, you know, I was young enough still in my early thirties that the uh, older staff were worried about me. They wanted me to find somebody okay. and, and they, and they told me, <laughs> that there was this really wonderful person who I really would like they were sure who was working for Dr. Ian Stevenson at the time up at the University of Virginia. And, and I was kind of, yeah, okay. All right. And did they, did they say like, you know, we've got a psychic feeling about this or like we have a, we have a premonition. No, it was just that a couple of the people on staff had met him and they were saying, no, no, he's just, I think this is, you know, you should, so I went to um, the Society for Scientific Exploration Conference in Charlottesville in 1983, and I met Carlos Alvarado, who was the research assistant, and we were an item like two months later and have been together ever since. So I finally did find my parapsychologist, but it took me a while to get there. Well, that's exciting. Well, just the idea, too. You know, yeah. there's something romantic in that. It's like, you know, you get the wife and the husband, like scientist couple, yeah. Working together to find something. And, and especially when you're working together to kind of research the same kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's to me, that's, and I'm, I'm heartless usually, but to me, I find that romantic. So you guys are part of a grand tradition of parapsychological couples. Yeah. Collegial couples. Yep. And uh, well, that, that's, that's fantastic. So you guys get or you get to the Rhine Research Center in Durham, mm -hmm. North Carolina. And this is the mid 80s now. Uh, was I started work there in December of 1982. Yeah. So you get there in 1982. Now, that seems to me like a position at the Rhine Research Center to be like you just got the best job oh, in parapsychology. Man. Like was yeah. that was was that kind of thing? Yeah, I I remember um, we did a series of of there's a there's a methodology called the Gonsfeld. And basically what you do is you put a person in a nice comfy chair and they have ping pong balls over their eyes. It sounds a little strange. No, they're listening. <laughs> okay. They're listening to white noise through the headphones. Um, and then the experimenter is in another room and there's a sender somewhere else in the building. And what you're trying to see is whether or not this kind of relaxed state, there's a red light in the room where the uh, receiver is, um, will it will inspire them to have more mental imagery and start picking up on that target. At, at the time that we were working, they were all art prints um, at that target that, that's in this other room that their pal or some member of the laboratory is trying to send to them psychically. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in the experimenter's box, which was full of equipment, you know, for recording and running the lights and doing all that stuff. And it had a two-way mirror. So I could, I could kind of look through the mirror at the subject, but they wouldn't see me on the inside of the room. And you, because the room was so dark, you could see a little bit of a reflection of yourself in that two-way mirror. Sometimes if you watch a crime show on TV, you can see that where they see into the room, but they also can see themselves. Right. And I remember looking at myself in this big old headset, listening to the person, the receiver, talking about what was popping into their mind and seeing kind of this 
you know, kind of fuzzy image of myself looking into the mirror and thought, how could it possibly get better than this? I mean, it was something I had dreamed about when I took my first parapsychology course. And it was just a wonderful experience. And it was a, a very, very vibrant place at the time. Dr. Ramakrishna Rao. Who's well, the, the fact that you guys had a two-way mirror. I, so I did, <laughs> I did the Gonsfeld experiment. That was for my uh, experimental psychology oh, course in 1996 wonderful. or whatever, back when I was in college. And, Where'd you go? Uh, University of Wisconsin. Oh, wonderful. And and so uh, I remember doing that and we had to set up my dorm room yeah. <laughs> with that with the red light and then you yeah. cut the ping pong balls in half and you put the headphones with the white noise Yep. and putting all that together and making that experiment. And there was no two-way mirrors in the dorm. Right. I was lucky that we didn't have the results ruined because everybody in the neighboring rooms was smoking pot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so... Well, we were a little more official than that, but right. still, and what an experience. Isn't it exciting? I found it so exciting to actually be conducting that research. And It, it was, and I remember ha- like finishing up the paper, and I don't think people realize of that psychology, like how connected psychology is oh, to yeah. statistics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and so when I could, you know, I do the math, and after the experiment, I'm like, hey, hey, guys, I proved ESP. How sweet <laughs> is that? Yeah, exactly right. Well, our experiment was, our first experiment was not quite as successful as we'd hoped, but it had some really good um, kind of psychological correlations inside. And the program went on from there um, under Richard Broughton, who was the uh, uh, the director of research for a while. He just retired from the University of Northampton in England. He, he and his group found um had a lot of success with it and they were the ones that that um provided the evidence that the pairs that do the best are biologically related pairs and then people in love people with an emotional connection and then out going out you know if you put a stranger in that sending room you didn't quite get the same kind of response when we were at um university of edinburgh carlos and i doing our phd in the 90s um, the the we had Charles Honerton there, who had been the one of the guys who had invented the Gottsfeld technique, and he had never finished his education. He's he was in such a rush to become a parapsychologist, and it was actually a smart idea because he died really young. He was like forty two or something. Oh man! But he had come to Edinburgh and set up this magnificent um, uh, research laboratory that had a bank vault for the receiver's room and another room dedicated to all the equipment. And then way down the hallway, there was a soundproof room that was made out of one of the offices where the, the, the sender sat, the receiver was in this bank vault. We had a little lounge. It was just marvelous. And that was even more um, kind of official. And Kathy Dalton, who was a colleague of ours there, did her PhD dissertation on Gunsfeld research and on the advice of Chuck and other people had limited the, the types of people who came in as subjects to people who were um, actors, artists, musicians, Creative writers. Types. Exactly. And they also had to have a little bit of a uh, background of having had experiences and okay. be interested in a mental discipline like meditation or, or a physical slash mental discipline like Tai Chi or something like that. And she had spectacular results. Um, so the Gonsfeld has a, has a, um, 
<laughs> that's a, I have a, a big affection for that particular methodology. Now, of course, it's all run by computers and right. all that kind of stuff. And for those of you playing at home, Gansfeld is German for like whole field. So what it is, is that your senses are com- like you're deadened to the outside world. And does, exactly. that, does that deadening to the outside world make you more, I mean, susceptible is not the word, but make you more receptive, I think is the word. Yeah, it's um, the, the original idea was that it produces stimulus hunger. So you're, you're not seeing anything, you're in a comfy chair, so there's not a lot of physical um, stimuli coming through. You don't have that social world of people walking around and talking and things to look at and so on. So you're in this kind of uh, restricted, visually and perceptually restricted environment. And it sets up this need for, for something, you know, I got to get some stimulus in here. And you kind of, you, you start to look inward, you start to open yourself up to other sources of information. So that was one of the original ideas. And it seems to work. I mean, for people that are not used to being very visual um, in their own imaginative uh, uh, place, it, it doesn't work as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why creative people do so well, especially um, graphics artists because uh, or artists of some kind, because they're used to kind of closing their eyes and imagining this entire kind of sensory uh, surround of sure, color and light and all that. They're the people that visualize. Yeah, exactly. So they're catching something. And, and the interesting thing about this just particular technique is that it seems to generate more results above chance. That, yeah. and, and you're the parapsychologist. I am the, the guy just uh, talking things I think I know. But it, from what I've read, it seems to really, that's the one experiment that usually statistically beats chance when it yeah. comes to the psychic research. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I, I, remote viewing comes, you know, close second. And there have been some folks like uh, Professor Chris Rowe at the University of Northampton who kind of combined the two, um, uh, uh, remote viewing and, and Gonsfeld to kind of see if they can up the yield as well. But definitely Gonsfeld is a very successful technique. And I think um, there's a very good Gonsfeld laboratory actually at uh it's run by uh, uh, Professor Fabio de Silva, who was a graduate student of Wellington Vangaris in Sao Paulo. And they have had a Gonsfeld lab set up for quite a long time. In fact, Kathy Dalton was one of the people back in the 90s who went down there to help them set, set up the first iteration of it. And they get a lot of good results. So it's still, it's still a, a technology that's in use, and particularly because of the yield that you, if you set it up right and you've got the right kind of people um, and then you do all the things you need to do in terms of to control uh, for extraneous things coming in, make sure that what you're actually getting is is uh, psychic functioning. It's a very, very useful tool, definitely. Still in use. Okay, so you get the dream job working at the Rhine Research Center. I mean, <laughs> you become like the woman in parapsychology. Well, you're, not well. No. <laughs> I'm just saying the dream job. I'm just saying yeah. a great dream job. And you're doing research. You're lecturing. Your husband's working on this stuff, too. Well, he wasn't my husband yet, but okay. yeah, my boyfriend was, yes, okay. up, up, at, up at University of Virginia. And he was traveling, investigating near-death experiences for on behalf of Dr. Stevenson. So he was having a lot of fun, too. <laughs> and Right. So you guys, you, you get there, you're lecturing, you're studying, and you're doing research. Mm-hmm. And 
So we're fast forwarding a bit here, but I think this is something that I'm definitely interested in hearing now that we're talking to somebody who doesn't just, you know, you most, a lot of the people we talk to on the podcast are, are, you know, they're great and they're interesting and they've got some cool stories, but most of their cool stories are not in a lab. <laughs> and so, you know, if you were, if we were at a cocktail party and we're like, you got to tell me the craziest thing you've ever seen in a lab. That, to me, would have much more validity than the craziest thing that somebody saw when they're just roaming through a house in the middle. Yeah. Well, and I I had the luck of having been involved with three laboratories because and, and, and spent a little bit of time in a fourth one um, because I worked at the Institute for Parapsychology, which was to become the Rhine. Um, from 82 until 86. And then I was a visiting scholar till 93. So I had a long time there. Then uh, during that period, uh, I went up to Princeton a couple of times to get training from Chuck Onerton in his lab, which was the psychophysical research labs that was there in the, I think from the mid 80s to the mid, until he went to Edinburgh in the early 90s, um, very early 90s, because he died in 92. I was also because it was in Princeton and Brenda Dunn was somebody that I had known from, you know, from college. I also had a little bit of time being a subject in the um, very much PK oriented laboratory in Princeton. So that laboratory was around psychokinesis. Psychokinesis is like moving stuff with your, exactly. With your mind. Exactly. And there... Um, they did remote viewing. They called it remote perception. Whenever uh, Brenda would go out on an international trip, lecture trip or something, they would have her find locations in the various countries she was in. So they did that kind of thing, but they focused on psychokinesis and mainly micro, um, uh, micro uh, PK, which is things that are happening inside of a computer that you really can't see. You really don't know what's going on. And then you have to kind of interact and try and make it produce one type of number instead of another one. But they had a macro PK installation in that university. And, and now it's in uh, the, the International Consciousness Research Laboratory Museum in Princeton. Um, that Brenda is now managing. So what do you mean by macro PK? So, so when we talk about micro something PK. Something you can see, something you can see. And that was something they were very interested in. So they were always devising all these cool things like water fountains and your job was to try and make it tilt one way or the other. But this thing was called the the random mechanical cascade. And it was built on the, uh, uh, to resemble the uh, bell curve generator at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago because Brenda had lived in Chicago and went to University of Chicago before she went right. to Princeton. Another connection. The Chicago another, loves the weird another, stuff. Exactly. And what it was was this huge installation that took up an entire wall and at the very top of it was a hole and out of that hole came these little, like, uh, uh, they weren't golf balls or ping pong balls, but they were hollow like a ping pong ball and about halfway in between um, a golf ball and a ping pong ball in terms of size, a little bit high, uh, maybe a little bit bigger. And then there were all these pins that were kind of all over the middle section of this display. And at the bottom, there were bins. And if you turned this thing on and nobody was trying to affect it in any way, the balls would come out that little hole at the top and they would hit the pins and they'd roll around in the middle and then they'd eventually drop into a bin. And the majority of them you know, would be in that middle section mm -hmm. and very few out on the end. So it would look just like a bell shaker. Your job is 
the subject when they were running it experimentally was to sit on the couch across the way from them that displays balls to go either to the high side or the low side. So you were concentrating on this incredibly noisy, very visual, very active piece of machinery, mechanical machinery, essentially. Um, and, and, and you got very, very excited <laughs> sitting on that, on that couch. And Carlson and I both did it and you, you'd be, pushing your body off to the left to get all the balls to go to the top if that's what they wanted was it to skew off to the right hand side or to the other way you'd be yelling at this machine no no go to the left go to the left and then they would statistically um the machine itself would count the balls as they emptied out of the bins back into that mechanism and they would run a statistical analysis and there were a number of people we weren't so hot at it but there were a number of people who managed to routinely skew the way those balls came out of the hole at the top to go either to the high direction which would be to the right of the, to be to the right of the display or the low direction direction which was the the uh, left of the display as you were looking at it and those people were also very good at the water thing and at the at the computer micro pk jobs as well so they had a lot of very interesting evidence for the operation of of micro pk and macro pk in that laboratory while they were doing things so you would see certain individuals really I mean, they could rely, not necessarily reliably, well, reliably, they, they could uh, affect something. Yeah, you yeah. Know, they, they couldn't just look at a pencil and the pencil would come flying into their hand, but they could affect something in a way yeah. that was statistically above chance. Exactly, because in life, in reality, the the majority of these so-called macro PK events are, are not very big. They're not what you see in the movies. There's something that's a bit more subtle than that. I mean, if you ever saw the original poltergeist movie there's mm -hmm. a point where the 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 scientist and her team come in the door and we are convinced that they made her look like Gertrude Smidler because she she had kind of that look from Gertrude's uh, um, when she was younger and one of the scientists says as they're on the way upstairs to the bedroom where all the furniture is floating oh I once saw this car that moved like four inches across the well that's because in the laboratory that's what you see you see these smaller effects and frequently the only way to detect that psychokinesis has happened is by doing a statistical test. And of course, in that particular movie, the, um, it was Hollywood. So all the furniture was moving and right. Williams made that wonderful face like, Oh yeah, I'll move four inches across that here. <laughs> look at this room, you know? So, well, the thing is that seems like very subtly affecting something, but let's say you're trying to make something happen and you're playing the lottery, then making balls move in certain situations. Well, that would be a very useful skill. Like yeah. I want to, I want to bring that person next time I go to the bingo <laughs> hall. Yeah, exactly. Make sure the numbers go your way. That's right. Right. So that is pretty interesting. Were there any traits in those individuals that, you know, you would see there was a like a common theme to them? So if they they were good at the micro PK, they could they could maybe predict or, or make random numbers happen on a computer in a computer program, or they were good with uh, statistically interfering with which directions the balls went into. Are there anything that, that kind of connected those people together? Well, first you have to believe that you can do it. And I think that that's uh, something that can be said of, of PK uh, subjects. But in parapsychology, not a lot of personality research has been done on the PK people as opposed to um, 
the folks who are in the ESP experiments. I mean, you have books like uh, Bill Rolls Unleashed about Tina Resch, who was a, a poltergeist agent. And, you know, you have people talking about the psychology of, of, of um, poltergeist cases that happen in life. And those are cases kind of like that movie mm-hmm. where things are moving around and so on. There's a wonderful book, actually, that was edited by Jim Haran, who was also from the Chicago area. And I think he's still in Springfield. Um, and he's a, a, if you know, Ursula Bielski, who does the ghost tours. Absolutely. That was, yeah. we were at yeah. the uh, Chicago Paranormal Conference this year. We did an episode dedicated to it. Wonderful. She's marvelous. And her books are very, very interesting. So uh, they were uh, pals at one point and he was in the summer study program. So he did a lovely compilation uh, many years ago on all kinds of different ways to look at poltergeist uh, cases. And there was that aspect of what are what's going on with those people in those events. And in those events, there's suppressed anger. There's um, uh, there's there's an inability sometimes to express distress uh, verbally and in other ways. And it seems to come out through the PK. There might be family disturbances, that kind of thing. But in terms of the personality of a specific PK, or not a lot of work has been done on that. And that's something that we're always mentioning to students is that you know this is an area that really needs more work. On the ESP side, we know, for instance, that in laboratory research, extroverts do significantly better than other folks. It may only be because they have to walk into a room with a lot of people that they don't know, sit down in front of equipment that they're maybe a little nervous about, and attempt to show that they have psychic functioning. So an an extrovert would find that less daunting than an introvert. But in the results, it seems that that's the deal. They're, They're extroverted. We also know that creative people you know, artists and musicians and writers and so on tend to do better than regular folks. Folks who have had some kind of mental discipline in their background um, have been drawn to meditation, have been drawn to other kinds of um, mental, physical sort of concentration uh, regimens like Tai Chi and other kinds of martial arts tend to do better. Um, We also... So people, I mean, basically people who seem to have open minds tend to have their minds more open. Yeah, that was right. That was the place where I was going. Is that one of the main findings has been this openness to experience using one of the more recent psychological testing personality tests um, that uh, they tend to have uh, more openness to experience. So they're they're kind of used to kind of opening themselves up to different forms of information. They don't find these kinds of experiences. Uh, to be so daunting. Um, It doesn't take a lot to give them permission to do well in an experimental test and that kind of thing. So if you pull in your average group of general members of the public and you've got lots of different kinds of attitudes, both towards their ability to do something or anybody's ability to to have an ESP experience, um, that has an impact. And then their own psychological kind of openness to kind of exploring and, and feeling and how much that's turned into activities in their lives is also is also very important. There was an interesting study done way back, I think it was in the 70s, but there was a woman named Barbara um, Lovitz, who's now a sociologist. Um, no relation um, to John Lovitz, right? No, no. Okay. Not that I know of, anyhow. Okay, that's on, a ticket. On the East Coast, she, she worked with Robert Richards at the University of Chicago, where she was an undergraduate, and he let her put together a study which was published in the Journal of Parapsychology in, I think, in the 80s, um, in which uh, she gave kind of the opposite 
instructional set to the people who are coming in. She told them, you know, there's no such thing as ESP. And uh, if you get if you get a negative, you know, if you get kind of a negative thing, a negative guess less cards than you should be guessing specifically um, statistically they were using ESP cards uh-huh. then, the Zener deck yeah the Zener deck exactly then you're uh, you're helping you know people who don't believe in ESP so she had all these different instructional sets and half of her group were anti ESP anti parapsychology they were skeptic self-proclaimed and half of them were positive towards it and then some of them got a set saying okay let's get in here and do this this can be done it's going to be great and then some of them got this oh if you do this this is going to really prove that there's no such thing as ESP when in fact it's just you know statistics speaking, it's what we call sign missing. It's it's a statistical anomaly in which you don't guess the cards correctly. And the only way to do so well at not getting them correct is to have gotten an impression of what they actually were and avoid. Ah, saying, okay, sure. Right? So, so you're, 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 it's like something inside you is getting it wrong on purpose. On purpose, exactly. And that was what she found is that the, the folks who were anti um, the notion of extra sensory perception and we're given this let's do this and you'll disconfirm um the the idea that esp exists they were the ones that had the statistically significant results so um that's another chicago connection and it's a it's yeah she didn't stay in the field but that's a very important paper that comes up over and over again that a lot of it has to do with what the participant thinks they're doing when they're in the experiment and what their attitude is towards whether the thing exists and whether they themselves can produce it. Um, Well, speaking of attitude, you know, this is something I want to get to because you've worked at a whole bunch of large research institutions. Yeah, actually, yeah. And we were talking about the 70s and, I, you know, it's groovy, man. But the thing is, (laughs) is that, you know, you had these classes offered. You had places like the Institute and at Duke University. You had things Mm -hmm. at Princeton University, major research institutions where you had psi research going on. Mm -hmm. Do you see the same kind of thing today? I mean, where do you think it is today as compared to where it was 30 years ago when you first got into the field? Well, when I first got into the field, I really thought things were going to keep going in the direction they were going in. And um, I mean, I guess we all loved Ghostbusters. Well, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We all thought it was gonna, it was gonna be, you know, it was just gonna keep expanding, and the the evidence was gonna keep mounting, and there were gonna be, um, you know, many many universities with places where people were researching, and maybe even courses and so on. And uh, the '80s and the early '90s happened. Um, I tend to, in this country, put it towards not just the political kind of turn towards conservatism, but the 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 success of the committee to scientifically investigate the claims of the paranormal. Um, the folks who published Skeptical Inquirer and all that stuff, they they began to institutionalize in a way that, um, and were very virulent against parapsychology back in the day. Ray Hyman was one of those people. So they were making it their business to go after the field and to make it understood among sort of rank and file non-committed academics that this was not the way to go. This was something you did not want to be involved in. And it had an impact on the flow of funding. It had an impact on universities' willingness to allow anybody but the adult education group to produce um, uh, courses and on a professor's willingness to um, 
supervised students. So it kind of fell out of the main universities. I mean, even uh, Bob John at Princeton had a situation at the beginning in 1976 where uh, James McDonald, who was then McDonald Douglas, you know, the big airplane builder, he was very interested in the field. And he gave a monster grant to Duke and he gave a big grant to Chuck Honerton and he just, you know, spread the money around essentially. And, and Princeton was not happy to, they didn't want to say no to the money, but they certainly weren't very happy about having this very prestigious rocket scientist um, who was the dean of the College of Engineering say, well, I want to, I want to do this. You know, I had a student challenged me to do an experiment and it came out positively and I want to know why, right. you know, so, and this guy, that sounds like me, science to me. Exactly. And this guy's giving me tons of money. So, you know, let's do this. So the lab uh, was founded and was um, given a date in the sense that when he retired, it retired and, and they were given digs in the basement next to the wood shop for the maintenance department. So it was in the school of engineering, but it wasn't exactly visible. <laughs> oh, and, man. and in the eighties, uh, there was a Duke lab, there was a lab at Duke in the school of engineering that, uh, professor Ed Kelly, who's now at university of Virginia, uh, ran also tucked in the basement, also dependent on a, a very prominent member of the departments, uh, being, being positive about it and protecting it. And then when he uh, he passed, unfortunately, um, uh, and in the I guess it was in the mid 80s and the university wasted no time shutting down that laboratory and kicking all the folks out. So things really kind of contracted like crazy in the United States um, at the same time that they were exploding in the UK. And one and there again, it was money. Um, Robert, uh, not Robert, uh, Arthur Kersler, the author had died and his wife had committed, they committed suicide together. He was dying of cancer and she just couldn't imagine living without him is the story. And he gave his, all of his money and his future royalties from his books and all that stuff um, to any university in the UK that would take on parapsychology. And so what was his interest? Did he, did, was he known as a writer in the field or he just was into it? He was very interested in it. He'd written some books that included information about ESP. He'd had personal experiences and he really wanted to kind of push this, you know, this forward. So um, they and they didn't have I don't think they had children. I'm pretty sure they didn't have children. So they, this I hope huge. not, because the children would be yeah. like, really, you're giving all the money to the Parapsychology Institute. What about me? Exactly right. So I'm, I'm pretty sure they were childless. But so they gave this money and the, a commission was set up. And luckily for all of us, uh, uh, Prince Charles was was very positive about it. He had always had an interest in the field. He was trying to get it into uh, the University of Carnarvon in Wales, and they were not so sure. And John Belloff, the philosopher, had been teaching, supervising students, one here, one there, Dr. Richard Broughton is one of his students at the University of Edinburgh. So Edinburgh was kind of like, well, we've been doing this for a while. Let's, you know, let's talk about it. So they ended up getting the Kersler money and they uh, uh, funded a Kersler chair of parapsychology and put out a call. And Professor Robert Lyle Morris, who was an American, had done his PhD at Duke in uh, comparative psychology, worked with ring doves, but he was really interested in parapsychology, um, couldn't do that, you know. Um, so he 
gotten a PhD in psychology, and he had been teaching all over the place, University of California, Santa Barbara, University of Syracuse. So he kind of rose to past president of the Parapsychological Association, all that stuff, rose to the top of the group and got the professorship. And for 19 years until his death in 2004, he was an amazing magnet for for people to come and get their PhDs. We had maybe 10, 12 students um, at it when it was at its maximum. We had laboratory space. There were lots of people that went through that program. He graduated 22 PhDs and a number of MAs um, who had done their primary research in parapsychology. That's really exciting. And you hear that about Edinburgh, and it's unbelievable that Prince Charles was into it, because I would think that he'd be afraid that people would find out that he was a lizard, like a reptilian, right? <laughs> That's, well, hopefully, hopefully not. He according would, to David Icke or whatever that, you know, so. I hope not. But anyhow, um, but uh, uh, the the upshot of that was that all of those students went out and the majority of them were UK. So now there is parapsych- there are parapsychology units all over um, the UK and Northampton and um, uh, University of Hertfordshire and Edinburgh and Manchester and, you know, various universities. So as we were collapsing over here under whatever winds were blowing, they were just exploding um, over there. And that's kept the field really going. So now there's quite a lot of work all over Europe, um, in Iceland and France and Italy and so on, uh, in Sweden, especially uh, Professor Edsel Cardenia at at Lund University has a has PhD students, and he also took the summer study program at, at uh, Duke back in the day. So at me at the Rhine Research Center back mm-hmm. in the day. Um, so that we always call that the Morris miracle because in that short span of time, Bob was only sixty two when he passed. He was able to mentor some very high level. Um, experimentalists like Professor Chris Rowe from Northampton and um, a whole number of people. And now there are, are their graduate students have graduate students who have graduate students. So it, that that kind of laid a more normal foundation for the field, albeit over there. Um, and here we're kind of struggling back where parapsychology exists typically are in bastions of transpersonal psychology, such as Saybrook University and Sophia University. But um, and then schools that are uh, a little bit over the accreditation line, you know, they're not they're not tiered schools like University of Wisconsin. They're schools that are they're maybe nationally accredited or something else right. um, that are kind of picking it up in this country. So and then in Brazil, it's doing better in the universities in Australia. It does better. The letter you wrote to J.B. Ryan. Yeah, he said, become a biologist. Don't yeah. tell anybody you're going to do this. Yeah. Now, first of all, when you get that from the Godfather or whatever, you're like, what are you talking about? But I considered it for a day or two. Because you know? yeah, you're like, well, he's, I don't know why he's saying this to me, but if somebody would ask you today, what's the best way to become a parapsychologist to kind of take that path to get where they can do research at a university, what would you suggest? Well, I would suggest uh, to follow your passion. If you have a if you have a passion in another area, say physics or anthropology, history, sociology, psychology, um, follow that passion and get trained up in that passion um, as as completely as you can. Also, spend 
what time you can uh, spend what time you can on getting um, collateral education in parapsychology. And you can do that through things like our MOOC that uh, starts on the 18th of January. You can do that through adult education courses. You can do that by going to the conferences, getting the journals, you know, all that stuff. So, um, and if you can find a program or a professor that will allow you to write your papers, do your research in that field, in the, as you're doing your undergraduate and master's, that's be, that's great preparation. And then to try and look for, figure out, is it possible for you to go to one of these schools that does have um, the, the ability to supervise graduate students, doctoral students, and so on. If, if, you know, back in the day when William James and all those guys were starting out psychology in the United States, the, the only place to get a PhD was in Germany. You went to the University of Leipzig and you studied under Wilhelm Wundt and then you came back to your country and you, you know, you set things up over here and the next generation didn't have to go so far afield. Well, we're kind of in that position. Again, you can go to Saybrook, which is an excellent university. You can find somebody to supervise you at Sophia. You can do something non-traditional like the, the thing that we're setting up. Um, but, but if you can get to UK, if you can learn Portuguese and go to Brazil, if you can learn German and go to Freiburg, University of Freiburg, if you can learn Italian and go to, um, the University of Padova, if you can get into Australia, if you can go where the universities are that have the PhDs, um, in the field, you can do that, but you can also come up in your own discipline and just make sure that you're incorporating it with, as an independent study, sort of, and every chance you get, if you find a, a positive professor. I found one at Northern Illinois when I did my master's and he had me do a state of the art article, article uh, for one of my educational psychology courses, basically. Hmm. So you can find people in different disciplines that'll let you do work. And then you have to kind of start building your community and building the community is a lot easier today than it was when I was coming up because of social media. So you can get, you can get connected to other students. You can get connected to other people that are interested in what you're interested in you know it's 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 a lot easier to kind of build that that group of like-minded individuals that help you reach your goals but i certainly wouldn't dictate a particular field to anybody because in reality this particular type of phenomena needs to be dis needs to be studied from a variety of disciplines we have physicists we in our MOOC coming up we have um Professor Bernard Carr, who's an astrophysicist and a statistician at Queen Mary College of the University of London system, trained with Stephen Hawking at Cambridge when he was young, lifelong interest in psychical research and psychic phenomena, trying to come up with a, a theory that will accommodate the origin and functioning of psychic phenomena. And, uh, and that's very important. And we have engineers like, like Robert, um, like, well, like, um, at this moment, we can't think of an engineer. I was going to say um, uh, Roger Nelson, but he's actually the only psycho one of the only psychologists that worked at the Paralab. So there's a, it, he's working on the Global Consciousness Project. There's a statistician in France, Peter Bancel, who's working on how you analyze a lot of these these data. Dean Radin at IONS got his degree in um, psychophysiology and uh, information, sensory information processing, and he's working on parapsychology. There's a historian um, at the Welcome, I think he's at the, 
is he at Cambridge? I um, just looked at Carl's Andreas Summers, who I think is a PhD, and he's teaching at Cambridge University. He's a guy who's looking at the history of it, how it is that that all of these types of phenomena got kind of orphaned by mainstream psychology. What's that process? And how has parapsychology and psychical research contributed back to the sciences, um, the mainstream sciences as well? So there's Lots of ways to do it. Lots of people now who are clinical psychologists. So I would just say follow your passion and figure out a way to get that parapsychology in there, you know, by hook or by crook. I think that's a that's a good message. Now, if people are interested in parapsychology, now you guys are um, at at the institute, the uh, El- Alvarado Zingroni Institute for Research and Education. Uh, Azire. Yeah, the Azire. It's it's a project of our. Yeah, the Azire. Um, it's a a project of our um, consulting company, and basically because we're mostly on our own at the moment, uh, we are also research fellows of the Parapsychology Foundation. So that covers about a half of our time, and I'm teaching psychology at uh, North Central University, an online uh, school, which is really I love it. It's ex- excellent. Um, so that covers part of our time as well. But the desire was uh, this idea that we had of pulling together all of our online activities towards um, educating people about the scientific side of the field. So there's lots of parts of there are lots of things that kind of fit under the desire um, uh, headline for us, you know, in that category. One is our um, massively open online course on the WizIQ, WIZIQ.com uh, network. That course, we brought in 23 people who were doing research at a high level in the field from all over the world to talk about their their research. And it's absolutely free. The students can go through. That course is still open. And the new one, Paramook, we're calling it the shorthand is Paramook um, for Parapsychology MOOC and Massively Open Online Course. Uh, it's totally free. You just have to have a computer connection um, and a pretty good internet. The new one starts on January 18th, and we've got 12 confirmed researchers, including Professor Erlander Haraldsson from the University of Iceland, Dr. David Luke from the University of Greenwich, who works on psychedelics in ESP, Professor Bernard Carr that I mentioned, um, and a bunch of other people we're adding on, we hope, another three or four. It'll run from January 18th through February 20th on WizIQ.com as a live course, and then it will be open until forever with monthly discussions until the end of August. Um, So that's one part of it. So those would just be for people who are interested in the scientific aspect of studying parapsychology. Yeah, now we get a lot of experiencers and we get a lot of ghost hunters and mainly because they're interested in the specific topics. Um, like, for instance, uh, Erlander Haraldson is going to be talking about his research into apparitions of the dead. So we always have things that are of interest to various aspects of the field. But it's not a bad idea to get a good grounding in what the wider thing is. And if you're in a webinar and it doesn't trip your trigger, you just, you know, <laughs> click off and come back for the next guy that sounds interesting. Well, I think uh, it's good for people, especially in this field. You know, my sister and I, Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts, have always been interested in this. I always thought it was fun. And then we started running ghost tours in our prospective cities. Right. And getting into the haunted history aspect of it. And I've, I was interested in parapsychology in college and everything. And, right. But only in the past couple of years, I've really dived into it. We started, you know, we have a podcast with my drummer and the band and, and combining all of the artistic things together with a parapsychological bent. 
Yeah. And from what I've discovered in the past couple of years of really talking to a lot of people and getting into the field is the lack of the grasp of the scientific method. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's for anybody out there, I mean, who wants to get probably introduced in a way that if you can start looking into this stuff and become a, a, you know, a quote unquote paranormal investigator and everything. And when you do that, having a good grasp of how scientists do this so that mm-hmm. they can replicate or they can publish or that they can write and talk about it in an authoritative way that you know, is acceptable to, to reasonable minded people. I think this would be a great place for them to start. So if you're listening right now and you want to be a paranormal investigator and you don't know much about the scientific method, that's okay. But get yourself educated so that you can really make more of a difference. Yeah, I think that's very important. And I know that's something that Lloyd Auerbach pushes too. And But it's it's also true of people that are experiencers. You know, they have their own experiencers. They may read books by people who also have the same experiences, whether they're out-of-body experience or um, mediumship type experiences. And they don't, they either don't realize that there's any scientific work being done on it, or they just haven't come into contact with those people or that literature. So that's another reason why this is massively open. You know, everybody is self-selecting. They come in and they find if there's something there that they're interested in and they can take it and use it. And then another uh, wonderful consequence of it is it's kind of a concentrated social media experience because it's being, WizIQ has a discussion forum and people can get in touch with each other. So you get together uh, with, you find that you're not the only one essentially that has an interest, that there's absolutely no shame whatsoever in not knowing something you're interested in knowing. I mean, that's how we all start in whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's it's a great opportunity, I think. And then it has, um, it has a very interesting uh, um aspect to it that very few of the students, I will admit, take advantage of, which is part of the Azire um, project that we do. We have a learning center and a library in the virtual world, Second Life, and we've been running it since 2009. You can uh, make an avatar, have a free account, go in, find the library, and it's full of recommended books. You can click through to where you can buy them from Amazon. It's full of uh, portraits of people in the field with a click through to their websites. Uh, It has a whole read-in library up on the second floor that's got uh, primary articles that are available free on the on the internet. And when we do the MOOCs, we have a discussion group that meets in that learning center in Second Life after the WizIQ-based discussion group happens. And those people got to be very close with each other. In fact, that's where the two people that fell in love fell in love. Sure. Um, partly because you're there's such a sense of co-presence in a virtual world. Um, the, the chatting is very immediate. It's very face to face and you can go off and do wonderful things like explore, you know, the area. Carlos was a genius when we first set this up in 2009 at leaving me alone to make the display boards while he went out and found a wonderful place to go listen to live, live music and have our avatars dance for a couple of hours. And so we, and that's the thing about second life. It really, there is something going on there. Like I've met people who've sold thousands of CDs on oh, yeah. you know, with people they meet on Second Life and perform yeah. for them, and you know people meeting a lot of interesting other human beings on it. And exactly. it sounds like you guys created the parapsychological library that we would love to have in real life, but now exactly. you've, you've got it on Second Life. <laughs> 
I know what you mean because um, I I had bought albums from Louis Landon, the the piano player, and Tony Gerber, who does um, this wonderful kind of esoteric music um, and Native American music as well. Saw those guys first on Second Life and became a fan, and then found out about what their CDs were and got them off of uh, iTunes and. You know, so there's lots of stuff going on, lots of education, lots of things to see. And we've built out that neighborhood. So there are lots of different venues. There's a treehouse where you can have discussions. There's a big lake where people can float around in inner tubes and talk about parapsychology. So um, we've done a lot of work there to make it a congenial place to kind of sit and chat and uh, learn, you know. So that's another part of the project. The third arm of the project, there's, well, there's a fourth arm too, but this third arm is the YouTube channel Parapsychology Online. We're in the process of, of still still working on putting up all of the lectures that, that uh, we can from last year's Paramook. We'll be doing that with this year's. We're consulting with the Parapsychology Foundation and have helped them set up their Parapsychology Foundation YouTube channel. Right now, we've been putting up all of the um, talks from the Parapsychology Foundation Book Expo that took place in November and December. And we had six of uh, the newest books in parapsychology on the academic side and, and good popular books like David Jaher's The Witch of Lime Street about the mar- medium Marjorie. Um, and we have all those lectures with them where they're talking about their book and how they did it and what they were interested in and so on. And those are going up on the Parapsychology Foundation site. The Parapsychology Foundation also has an enormous amount of con- content from monthly lectures that they did in New York City in the 90s and conferences going back to the 50s and so on. So we've got a big project going um, now between all of us who are research fellows and volunteers and so on um, to get all of that material up on their uh, YouTube channel. And then the Azire's fourth wing is our blogs. I run the Parapsychology Online blog, which basically talks about what our educational experiences are and what we're doing and what's available on one of the things I'm doing this afternoon is updating it for the new MOOC. Carlos has been writing uh, one called a parapsychology um, news history and research or history news and research. It's Carlos S. Alvarado. I'll send you the link. Yeah, um, please do. Yeah. Uh, WordPress.com. And what he's been doing for several years now is blogging about the books in the field, the people in the field, interesting ideas. The most recent one was on Michael Grosso's new book on Joseph, um, St. Joseph of Cupertino, who was a monk in the Middle Ages who levitated. And there were many, many witnesses who saw this happen. And he talks about different kinds of these so-called miraculous um, experiences that many of these saints had with a connection to parapsychology because Michael's also one of the authors of a chapter in Edward uh, Kelly's uh, new anthology Beyond Physicalism Towards a Reconciliation of Science and Spirituality. His uh, video is just up on a Parapsychology Foundation YouTube. So my YouTube channel and what we're trying to do for the foundation is also part of the Azire Projects. Um, and the Parapsychology Foundation is a supporter of our of the MOOC. Where's the first place to go if people want to find out more about your class and they'd like to read some of your stuff? Where would you? What was the first website you'd recommend them to go? Well, I, to our website, which is uh, 
don't use the WW. It's just T-H-E-A-Z-I-R-E dot org backslash WordPress. And that's the main Azire website. It's got a ton of our publications that are available in PDF up there already and some information about our past educational experiences. Then to parapsychologyonline.wordpress.com. That's the Parapsychology Online uh, blog that carries the basic information about all of the courses we've done and what we're doing, and it has links to all of the the various things on WizIQ. Um, And I would encourage them also to follow us on Facebook. We have a Parapsychology Online Facebook page. The Parapsychology Foundation has a Facebook page as well. There is a Paramook um, P-A-R-A-M-O-O-C uh, Facebook page, which you have to ask for permission to sign up. It's a closed group, but we have admins working on that all the time, so you don't have to wait too long. Those are the primary places to look for information about what we're doing. And of course, on WizIQ.com. Um, and on WizIQ.com, what you want to do is make a create a free account as a student and then click on uh, search for courses and put in the word parapsychology and virtually everything we're doing and everything PF is doing um, because the Parapsychology Foundation also has an academy on WizIQ just like we do. Um, all that parapsychology stuff will come up and you can get into it and the majority of it is free. I encourage everybody to go check that out. And if you're interested in parapsychology and interested in the scientific research of all the kind of stuff that we love to talk about on this show, you know, ESP, poltergeists, even apparitions and some of the ghost stuff, I encourage you guys to check this out so you can learn a little bit of that scientific method and see what kind of research has been done and and see what the real world's really doing with psychic research phenomena. And, And Nancy, I could listen to you talk about the different experiments and all the stuff you have going on all day because I think it's awesome. And I, I admire you and your husband and all the hard work that you guys have done for parapsychology over the years. And I thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I, I hope we see you in the course. I know Allison's planning on joining. So um, she's in last year. So we hope we see you there as well. Yes, I'll definitely take a look. Thank you very much for joining us today, Nancy. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. So that was Nancy. Very fascinating. And I could tell you were really into it, Mike. Yeah. And no, I thought she was really cool. And just somebody that went out and made that job happen in an environment that's not particularly uh, friendly towards yeah. sciences like parapsychology. The fact that uh, her and her husband, Carlos, keep going. I respect them very much. And I think they're awesome. Definitely pioneers. Yes. For sure. So Always respect that. One of the things we talked about uh, in the interview was an experiment she did called the Zenerdeck experiment. And Zenerdeck was developed by one of J.B. Ryan. Uh, he's the professor we talk a lot about in the interview. Uh, one of his associates, and it is a, a deck of five cards that have five different symbols on them. Uh, wavy lines, a cross, star, a box, and a circle. And people try to predict what the card is that the other person is looking at. And so that's kind of the experiment. And so uh, this song for the week is called Zenner Deck. Can you read my mind? Then you know what I mean. Can you tell what I'm thinking? That there's nothing clean. You're inside my head, but it's a bottleneck. These words don't need to be said like a Zenner Deck. Center 
like a Xana dick. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. I'm recording now. Me too. Okay. One, two, three, clap. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, three. clap. So Hello again. First uh, week. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs>